Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello, welcome <clears throat> back to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. I am Megan. Chris, I am Lauren. The other person. There we go. The other person. All two of us are present. How are you doing, Lauren? Doing good. Ready to talk about some awful things. Yeah, once again, we are talking about kidnapping. We're doing our whole series on kidnapping. Today, we're going to be talking about child abductions, so bit different than last time. We're just going to get a little bit older. Next time, it's going to be adults. <clears throat> yes, which is, you know, equally interesting. It's just, it's interesting how we really can separate it from, like, baby snatchers all the way to adults other stuff mm -hmm. that we'll talk about yeah <clears throat> and then we'll probably do human trafficking as well mm -hmm. because it is related but motivationally different than other forms of kidnapping so yeah yeah so thank you everybody for continuing to listen and all your good feedback katie m messaged us on patreon and or patreon and she um is going to let us know of an episode request so katie please write in let us know and we'll get to that when we're done with this series yes um and then speaking of listener feedback um we have gotten some feedback lately that you know the audio is wonky and so i wanted to ask and clarify with you guys when when you say that the audio is kind of like all over the place is it like our earlier episodes that you're listening to where you feel like the audio is wonky or are you listening to like our most recent episodes just because i agree like you know at the beginning it was really rough like we were trying to like figure it out and we had very like minimal equipment um but I'm hoping as time has progressed and, you know, even listening to this episode now that it's improved a lot and it's more uh, even, like, you know, volume wise and all that good stuff. Um, so if you could just clarify for us, that really, really helps just because I know we mention this all the time, but we don't know what we're doing in terms of like editing audio. We're doing our absolute best. So if you could tell us specifically, that would be really helpful. Or if you know about, like, editing and audio stuff and you have suggestions, we'll also take those, too. Right. And, I mean, definitely we want to make the audio better. And we obviously know what it sounds like on our own computers. <clears throat> right. But there's so many different devices we just would, like, we want to fix it for you. And I think, especially since we don't know that much about audio editing we are really trying our best and googling and watching videos and trying to learn on the fly here so if you're having problems with the audio if you know like if there's something specific if you guys could you know reach out and tell us that would be helpful because we really do want to fix it it's just when it's vague like the audio is inconsistent that we don't know how to fix inconsistent audio if we don't know what episode you're talking right. about if we don't know what's actually happening so we're trying our best we are sorry i agree uh my editing skills are far from perfect <laughs> i think they've, they've gotten, gotten better so over time much better but yeah it's really improved so much and again like we don't know what you guys are hearing so if you write in we're not going to be like, oh, like, you hurt our feelings. It's like, no, like, this is really helpful. 
<laughs> it would be very helpful feedback. So if there is an audio issue, if you know what the audio issue is, please tell us. Or if you can just kind of tell us like which episode and what you're hearing so we can work to fix it. I don't mind going back and re-editing, but obviously what I'm listening out for is very different than what you as a listener might be hearing, yeah. and we might just be focusing on different things. So we want to make this better for you, but we're not really sure how to fix it at this right. point. So if we could get a little bit more specific, that would be helpful to us. Yes. So thank you guys. Thank you for always being honest. And even if the audio is annoying, <laughs> continuing to listen, um, we really appreciate that because we are trying hard. Yeah. So thanks. So thank you. Um, yeah. I think that's kind of all we yeah, got at the top. up top. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So. Yeah. Kidnapping. So with child abductions, there's there's lots of like different types mm -hmm. and I found this great article The Psychological Impact of Kidnapping mm. by Francis A. Ekwash I'm sorry Francis, where are they from? Butchered your last name they are from the Nisarwa State University oh I don't know where that is. is I don't know let's google it sounds not American <laughs> They are um, in Nigeria. Oh, cool. So thank you uh, to whoever wrote this. They are a uh, Department of Psychology Faculty of Social Sciences over in Nigeria. Um, but a good, you know, well-researched paper of some of the psychological studies that have been done on the impact of kidnapping, which is great because... Some of this research is really hard to hunt it down. Is. It's not like a heavily researched field. It seems like the FBI researches it more than like psychologists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And especially it's good to get some stuff um, from places. America is not the country that has the highest incidence of kidnapping. We're actually a bit on the lower side, so it's good to get some more international research because yeah. as much as the FBI does research it, really only research is this happening in America, and obviously America is one of a whole lot of countries on the planet, so really good to get some other things. Yeah. Um, so in this article, just kind of talking about some of the psychological factors in forensic psychology of the motivation. So they're saying the first and foremost motivation for kidnapping is sexual gratification, where a person will kidnap in order to hold someone as a sexual slave. In extreme cases, they may torture and kill their victims when they no longer have use for them. And I think this goes for child and adult. Yeah, and just real quick, if you didn't already know, like, massive trigger warning. Like, we're talking about child abduction. We're going to be talking about sexual assault. We're going to be talking about um, murders. Um, so please keep that in mind as you continue listening. Yeah, definitely keep that in mind. Um, also talking about ransom kidnappings, which I think is one that we don't always think think about no. i think we you know i know when i hear kidnapping even though ransom is a not uncommon motivation so unlike sexual kidnappings ransom kidnappings usually require that the abductors keep their victims safe from harm right if you're trying to get money for someone's life killing them 
probably not the best way to go about doing that. Sadly, sometimes people will ransom kidnap and still never intend on actually giving uh. the victim back. So it kind of depends there. Um, so, you know, if they're going to take a hostage for ransom, they'll target the victim based on outwards appearance of wealth or information from someone who knows the victim. So obviously... In ransom kidnappings, you tend to want to know something about the person or family that you're kidnapping in order to verify that they could pay a ransom. A lot of times, I think they're asking for pretty large sums of money, so you do need to do get some information on that. There's hostage for ransom victims tend to survive mm. their ordeal. There's also, you know, certain cases of extremists or terrorist-based oh. kidnapping, things like nationality, political parties, that can happen as well. Then the kidnapping of a child by a non-custodial parent, which I think is actually numerically the most common child abduction, it is. is familial kidnapping. Yep. Which I know you're going to talk more about the motivations of that, so I'll kind of just leave that there. But that is definitely in America the most common child abduction is familial kidnapping. And it's also just talking about, you know, hostage taking, which not often happening to children. So we'll talk about that a bit more in the adult kidnapping episode but taking hostages very similar to kidnapping or can be the exact same thing depending on the circumstances but it's really interesting that you know there is the sexual motivation especially with child kidnappings unfortunately that does happen but ransom and familial i think are probably the more common ones for that absolutely okay so let's let's expand on these motives a little bit um and I'm going to be talking about some of the ones that Megan touched on, expanding a little bit more, and then there's some other ones, too. Um, so I found some research um, from Annie, and they talked to a lot of different professionals. One of the professionals they talked to was a sociology professor from the University of New Hampshire named David Finkelor. <laughs> I think that's how you pronounce his name. Finkelor. Yeah, I've, I've read a lot of his Research. Okay. Big fan of David. Yeah, Kibor. I see him come up a lot in this. So he, he's one of uh, he's connected to the trauma focused cognitive behavioral oh. therapy research in sexually abused children. So very helpful, very important guy. Yep. Um, so this is a quote by him. He says, "With children, the assailant in all kinds of crimes, including abductions, is more likely to be a family member or an acquaintance." So one of the big motives can be often a desperate parent. So the trigger to an abduction can be as simple as a custody battle. And another person that kind of weighs in on this and what I read was jo Jeffrey, Joffrey, grief. Um, and they are a professor at the University of Maryland, again, School of Social Work. The, un the United States Department of Justice in 2002 studied family abductions involving 203,900 children have found the majority, which was 53%, involved biological fathers taking their children. Um, biological mothers kidnapped their children in 25% of the cases. Um, when marriages went sour, the parent without custody may seek revenge on his or her ex. Um, 
and that happens quite frequently. Or a parent may be worried that a spouse or a spouse's partner is abusive. And that's, you know, something that we may not think about. Like, okay, they're mm-hmm. kidnapping for, you know, better, re- like kinder reasons of, you know, I want to protect my child, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think at the same time, it can also be as simple as fearing that they're never going to see the kid again. Right, which... I've heard that brought up a lot as well. Yeah, which, you know, as humans, we can understand. There's a great website, and I know Megan's talked about this website before, kidsmarts.org. Family abductions occur when relatives break legal custody agreements by keeping kids from their legal guardians, and family abductions usually involve parents taking their children. An An abduction may be more likely to occur if, and these are some ways that you can kind of look out and spot an abduction before it happens well one if they threaten to abduct or previously have abducted a child that one's pretty straightforward saying you're gonna abduct the child or having done it before does indicate you might do it a big clue Uh, the next one is no strong ties to the child's home state but ties to friends and family living in another state or country um or engaged in planning activities So, for example, like if a parent suddenly sells their home or is trying to secure certain records rapidly or something like that, that might be something to pay attention to. History of marital issues or a history of domestic violence or child abuse. Mm -hmm. They also did an analysis of uh, attempted abductions in the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and they found that Many involved a suspect driving a vehicle and occurred between 2 p.m. and 7 p.m., which is interesting. I'm guessing because that's when school gets out. I've heard a lot of, you know, with that, yes, school getting out, especially familial abductions. It'll be the other parent just picks up the kid from school or grandparent or whoever. Right. But I think that's a common one, especially since schools tend to get out somewhere between two and four in America, depending on the age of the child. Mm -hmm. And a lot of parents, uh, not technically cool in most states to leave your kids alone, but I mean, let's be real, most parents are going to because a lot of parents don't actually get home from work until five or six. So I think that's probably why the two to seven is kids are probably more likely to be alone after school or outside playing or opportunities. Right. Yeah, or even, like, if they're at daycare, they can just mm-hmm. swing by. I'm sure that's, like, a very easy way to make that happen. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, between 2 to, two p.m. to 7 p.m., it tends to occur when the child was traveling to or away from school. Um, it involved girls and children between the ages of 10 and 14. The verbiage of girls and yeah, children Yeah, that was weird. Varies. That is, I mean, I feel like you could just leave it at children. Children article? Kind of weird, but all right. Yep. Hopefully that was fine. a weird and typo. <laughs> definitely, I will say, the uh, familial kidnapping, like I said, the most common. I only know one person that has been kidnapped, and it was a familial kidnapping. Yeah. International familial kidnapping, which was interesting, but still familial. So yeah. that is the most common one. Yeah, the only person kidnapped. I've worked with that had been kidnapped um it was by a parent um Mm -hmm. so i I think that is super duper common 
Yeah. Um, there's also some risk factors for people who are non-family. Um, again, not as common, but important to think about. Uh, one, of course, is mental illness, right? So mental illness factors into 9% of <clears throat> quote-unquote stereotypical abductions where children are taken by a slight acquaintance or a stranger. Um, and this is according to the U.S. Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Report. Um, sometimes an abduction can result from acute emotional distress. Um, and they went into that a little bit and they gave examples of kind of like what we were talking about last episode of like, you know, a mom who has like a miscarriage or has a child who dies. They're going through a time of acute emotional distress and they may act out if they're not in a mm -hmm. mentally sound place. And of course, there's episodes of psychosis that some people go through and have delusional thoughts. Um, but the percentages for psychosis are unknown. I haven't really found like a specific percentage of how often that is. Yeah, again, the actual statistics on this are kind of hard to come by. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Each year, about 10 abductions are committed by women who desire children of their own. Um, women who abduct babies usually do it to preserve a relationship with a man. Um, the women will try to convince the man that the baby she, she suddenly has is his. Um, and we had kind of talked about that last episode, too. Um, and this was according to Kenneth V. Lanning, who is a retired FBI agent in Virginia um, and also is a consultant for the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children. So mental illness is another big one. Um, another one that Megan was talking about before, too, um, is sexual abuse. So people can be really mo be really motivated by that. Um, the broad population of child molesters, most of whom do not abduct their victims, um, is too diverse to actually fit in a single psychological profile. But the far smaller group of those who abduct and keep children for sexual abuse share common traits. And a lot mm -hmm. of people have studied this. Um, at least 95% of them are men. And they tend to be unmarried and have few friends. They are, and this is according to, again, David Finkelor. And he said they are seedier, more unattractive, socially outcast kind of individuals. So this is interesting. Many abductors harbor um, sexual fantasies that involve children and may exercise these fantasies by using child pornography. Many others pick on children because they may be easier or more convenient. And that's according to Mark Hiltz, who was, again, with the FBI specializing in child abductions. Their preferred partner might be an adult female, so that might be preferential for them. However, with their poor social skills, they may not feel comfortable with that, or they have tried to restrain an older woman but were unsuccessful, so they pro progress younger until they're finally able to find someone small enough to bring into their vehicle. Mm -hmm. So this is interesting that, you know, it's kind of looking at it from that social perspective, and Lanning, again, the FBI agent that I mentioned before, um, he said, why do these particular child molesters abduct? Because they lack the interpersonal skills to attract, befriend, and seduce their victims. 
So when we've read about child molesters before, just in research and things like that, um, you know, these people tend to be really charming people that like you wouldn't really expect. That's how they get these kids to um, go places with them and interact with them and stuff like that. But these people who have the intent of sexually assaulting these children and end up abducting them and keeping them, they don't have those same skills. They're not as equipped in that way. Um, I do like that the research touches on something that definitely in working with sexually abused children and having done interviews is true, even though it tends to make people really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. There is a huge difference between a pedophile and somebody who sexually abuses children because pedophiles very specifically have the paraphilia where they are exclusively sexually attracted to children. Right. Whereas, you know, a lot of pedophiles are child molesters, but not all child molesters are pedophiles. Right. Um, and technically there is research. Um, They're doing research on people who do have pedophilia and have not abused children, which is an interesting field of research. I don't know enough about it, but they're working on like risk factors and prevention to, you know, obviously protect children from people. But unfortunately there are a lot of people who will kidnap and sexually abuse or just sexually abuse children who actually are not sexually attracted to children. Right. Because, again, a lot of times, any form of sexual abuse, it's not necessarily about sexual attraction. It's more about power and control and other dynamics. So there definitely are a lot of cases where stuff like this happens where the people are not necessarily sexually attracted to children or are not exclusively sexually attracted to children. Right. It's more about, like Megan said, the power and control, you know, def definitely exploiting, like, size you know stuff like that a lot of times you know crimes of opportunity yep for certain things if you def if you really want to kidnap somebody to sexually abuse them a lot of times you know like the research says it may be more convenient to kidnap a child and that's why they do it or they may have had multiple failed attempts or that just may be who they end up having access for because, again, I think at the point in time where you're considering kidnapping someone in order to get a sex slave, you're already thinking differently than most of the population right. to begin with. So there's, there's kind of a lot that happens. So now, a bit about what, what happens to the kids. What is the psychological impact of kidnapping? So I'm definitely going to talk a bit about the psychological impact more in depth during my story a bit but some of the basic research uh believe it or not post-traumatic stress disorder you don't say pretty pretty common psychological side effects of having been kidnapped some research found after an incident in san francisco where 26 children and their driver were abducted and held in a vehicle underground for hours all of 26 of the children displayed symptoms of PTSD. Um, some symptoms worsen over time, such as shame, pessimism, and nightmares. Socially, a lot of times post-kidnapping, children will be withdrawn, irritable, avoidant. They may have learned helplessness, where they come to believe that no matter what they do to improve their life, nothing is going to work and nothing's going to improve their situation. Mm -hmm. They may exhibit 
depression or anxiety. So hypervigilance is a common symptom. Hypervigilance being just on guard all the time, but to a very severe extent, always checking over your shoulder, looking for danger, knowing the exits everywhere. There... They mentioned Stockholm Syndrome, which again, I'll talk about a bit more. And we did a whole episode on mm -hmm. Stockholm Syndrome is definitely every people tend to overuse Stockholm yeah. Syndrome as like any time you try to get along with your kidnapper right, to like save your life. Sometimes That's not Stockholm it's, it's beneficial to do that, to get out of a bad situation. Right. Doesn't actually mean they're in love with their kidnapper. Uh, it's not Beauty so and the I'll Beast. Be, yeah, I'll be talking about J.C. Duggard who uh, people commonly say had Stockholm Syndrome. She is very clear that she didn't, didn't, she never had Stockholm Syndrome, and people saying that she did actually disgusts and bothers her quite a bit. So let's all knock that off right now. I'll get into it a bit more later, right? So some people say that, which I... <laughs> I don't know. Again, the research is really out on if it's even a real phenomena or not. Very strange thing. But a lot of the pessimism, withdrawal, depressive symptoms, you know, being shocked, numb, feeling hopeless. I mean, that would be... Feeling hopeless would be a pretty normal yeah. response to having been kidnapped. Yeah. So there is quite a lot of things. And with... Um, you know, they, an international classification of mental and behavioral disorders conducted a study of ransom victims in Sardinia and found that 50% suffered from PTSD and 30% had major depression. So they found some of the character changes were a hostile or mistrustful attitude, social withdrawal and estrangement, feelings of emptiness or hopelessness, feeling on edge, and children specifically might display school refusal or mm. loss of interest in studies, dependent and regressed behavior, and preoccupation with the event. I can imagine after having been kidnapped, probably difficult to focus on school. So, makes a lot of sense. And then a psychological impact that... I think a lot of people don't talk about, and really, if we're going to the most rare form of kidnapping, would probably be children who are kidnapped as children and then held until adulthood, which again, talking about J.C. Duggard, so we will be covering that, but children who are, you know, kidnapped and held for years, or anyone who's been kidnapped and held for years, essentially needs to learn how to be an adult. Right once they get out because they kind of will end up with some suspended development yeah. um so i actually read jc duggard's book a stolen life highly recommend it we'll discuss more when i tell you my story and one of the most ridiculous things i saw in reviews of that book is people talking about how it was like poorly written and there were lots of grammatical errors. And it's well, like, girl mean. wrote a memoir. She was kidnapped at the age of 11. And, like, that's her highest level of education. Like, right, she's doing her best. She's not a professional author. And also, I mean, it was well written. It was not, like, obviously there was some grammatical stuff. But she just, it's, I mean, the whole thing reads like she's just telling you the story. Right. It's a great book, right? But even then, if you're kidnapped as a child, 
and then you're held and you don't get school. There's all of these things like you never learned how to drive. Mm -hmm. You've never had a bank account. You've never had to pay taxes. There are all of these things in your life that I'm sure, people like, gradually learn that you don't. Yeah. And I'm sure like socio-emotional development and like relationship building, like that stuff gets stunted too, where, you know, it might be hard to, you know, learn to make friends you know mm -hmm. learn how to work through problems like with a friend or someone you're in a relationship with yeah so um hold on so i have some nicmec statistics which is the national center for missing and exploited children I'm thinking one of them didn't. Hold on. Okay. So here are just some statistics on missing children in general, just to roll through some missing children statistics. So this is a great one. So the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So in 2020, I looked so long to find this. And of course, now when I'm quickly Googling it in the episode, it just pops up. I'm like, I searched your website for like five yeah. hours. Yes, not five hours, but I was searching for this. So basically, yeah. looking at the statistics in 2020, they assisted law enforcement and families with more than 29,800 cases of missing children. Okay. Of the case type, 91% were endangered runaways. And this is something that I think is so important to look at because, again, we see these big numbers and don't always see the breakdown. So mm -hmm. it looks like, you know, almost 30,000 kids were kidnapped. Right. Those are missing, not kidnapped. So 91% are endangered runaways. Endangered runaways meaning children who ran away. 5% mm -hmm. were family abductions. 3% were critically missing young adults, ages 18 to 20. Less than 1% are non-family abductions. And then 1% are lost, injured, or otherwise missing children. So the lost, injured, and otherwise missing children would be a lot more... You went on a hike. Mm -hmm. And you lost your child and you're trying to find them. Right. Like more accidental missing children versus the child running away or someone taking them. Mm -hmm. They're missing for another reason. Kids can wander off. I know there was a story a couple years ago, a kid who was lost in the woods for like three days and they found him. Wow. So like kind of those other cases where they just go missing kind of accidentally. And of the nearly 26,500 runaways reported in 2020, one in six are likely victims of child sex trafficking. Mm. That's what they think. So, kind of going back on that, you know, what is happening? Okay, there we go. Um, so, you know, in 2017, again, there are 27,000 cases of missing children reported. 5% were, fam were family abductions. So it looks pretty, the stats are pretty consistent year to year. Mm -hmm. In 2016, 60% of all Amber Alerts that were issued were for family abduction cases. 
So, you know, looking at the stranger abduction or non-familial abduction, there were a couple things they found. Attempted abductions were more off occur more often when a child is going to or from school or school-related activities. School-aged children are at greater risk on school days before and after school, so between 7 and 9 a.m. and 3 to 4 p.m., and then after dinner, 6 to 7. Again, a lot of kids, if it's still light out after dinner, will go outside to play. Yep. Attempted abductions most often occur on the street while children are playing, walking, or riding bikes. Younger children are more likely to be playing or walking with a parent or an adult, whereas school-aged children are more likely to be walking alone or with other children. And attempted abductions of older children are more likely to involve a sexual component. So there is, you know, quite a bit of attempted abductions, obviously, because if a child is attempted to be abducted not successfully, you can always interview that child about what happened. It's kind of an easier avenue of interest. Uh, the most common in analysis of the attempted abductions, the most common lures to get the children are offering the child a ride, offering candy or sweets, asking the child questions, offering the child money, or using an animal to interest the child. Mm -hmm. So saying like, hey, I have a puppy over here. Come and look at the puppy. Yep. And some ways that children have gotten away from their abductors or attempted abductors are ignoring or refusing them, mm -hmm. using a cell phone to threaten or intervene, fighting back, screaming or making noise, another adult or child intervened, or abductor left the area or voluntarily released the child. Mm. Um, I know when I was growing up, there was an abduction, there were several abduction attempts in my town oh. for a while, and in one of them, the girl was riding her bike, and I mean, good thinking for her, because she knew the shortcuts through the background she had been riding her bike at one point in time i believe the story it's been a while since i read it she actually threw her bike at the abductor and ran through backyards and was able to take a back way home so again i think it's good to talk about all the ways that children have you know been able to get away from attempted abductors right so looking at um you know Another one, another category is missing from care when you're looking at missing children. So in, you know, 2015, they received 7,900 reports of a child missing from care. And in 2017, it was over 18,000. So that seems to be going up. So missing from care, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, you always have to report if a child who is in foster care mm -hmm or any type of care situation runs away, it's automatically reported. So missing from care is any child who is in the foster care system that does go missing from their group home, foster parents. And they said 16% of the children who ran from the care services uh, were assumed to be likely victims of sex trafficking. Wow. Yeah. So, again, if we're going to endangered runaways again looking pretty consistent with that again in you know 2019 like 2020 it was 91 percent are endangered runaways of the kids that you see going missing 
So 77% of them were between 15 and 17 years of age, and 87% had some risk factor in the life where they would be more in danger of some negative consequence. Um, so again, large, a lot of the numbers really are teenagers who have run away. Mm -hmm. In between January 1st of 2012 and December 31st, 2016, 900 Amber Alerts were issued, and 6% of which were lost, injured, or otherwise missing children. So I guess for those of you who don't know, because you're not in the United States, Amber Alerts are something that happens when a child has gone missing or has been abducted. I know I get them. Mm -hmm. I get push notifications of Amber Alerts on my cell phone. Me too. So you will instantly get these reports that just say, like, this child is missing. It get, has the description of the child and the description of the abductor and their vehicle, the vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. So that is something that happened after a little girl named Amber was kidnapped. There were witnesses, but since there was no really good consistent way of making sure that people to communicate um, unfortunately she did die and then her family pushed for the amber alert system so everybody you know instantly knows be on the lookout for this car there's a kid in it call the police if you see the car so you get the license plate and all that and the area that they're at and um you know according to these are some from polyclos.org national kidnapping statistics and this is one to talk about of the children who go missing, 99.8% of them do end up coming home. Yep, that's so, important. Again, because a lot of them are child, the big bulk of them have run away. A lot of them will come home. <laughs> of course, some of the runaways do end up in human trafficking and other horrendous things, which we'll talk more in a future episode. But a lot of the kids do end up coming home safely. Yep. So, uh, you know... They're saying nearly 90%, or according to Nick Mac, 91% of missing children have simply misunderstood directions, miscommunicated their plans, or are lost or have run away. So again, there is that 1% that's just otherwise lost that isn't a kidnapping. I mean, if you think about it, parents might report their child missing because their child is missing when in reality there was a miscommunication right. and they're at a friend's house or something that does happen quite a bit of course parents in an overabundance of caution will report things sure. just to be sure and it ends up being fine um you know these ones are a bit different but yeah a fraction of 1% are kidnapped each year in the stereotypical stranger abductions you hear about on the news. Mm -hmm. So, again, very, very rare for stranger abductions to happen. Most missing children have run away or are lost or something. About 5% are familial abductions and less than 1% are stranger abductions. So, there's also a study done in 1997. Could not find a newer study on this probably exists, but I was unable to locate it. But this was the Attorney General of Washington State in 97, which is about the homicide statistics, so the deaths, the murders of children who were kidnapped, mm -hmm. which are what they found that among abducted children who were murdered, in 74% of the cases, the victims were dead within three hours of the abduction. Okay. 
So it's not reported. So again, it's important to acknowledge that statistic is a very small group of children who are abducted by violent or predatory kidnappers. Right. Like you have to think about the percentage where of children this actually like happens to. And then it's a percentage based off of that. (laughs) So it's a very small amount. Um, But again, that is one of the reasons where it really is pushing if you think a child is missing. It is important to report it really, really early because if if they happen to be of that very small percentage where it is a violent kidnapper, time really is of the essence Mm -hmm. to actually save them. And so, yeah, they're saying... Only about a hundred children each year are kidnapped by the stereotypical stranger abduction, and about half of those hundred kids end up going home. Right. So again, about fifty kids a year in the United States is still far too many. Right. But it is again a very, very small percentage of kids, and it's just again I like to look through the statistics because it's important to understand what, what the reading. actual risks are. Yep. Exactly. Thank you. Those are very important and it's important to break down statistics to understand what we're actually looking at. So I wanted to share a story today um, about an abduction that happened in 2002. So this is the story of Kara Robinson Chamberlain. So this happened June 24th, 2002, in Columbia, South Carolina. So at the time, Kara was 15, and she was at a friend's house. The teens had planned to head out for the lake for the day, but first her friend's mom had asked if the teens could water the flowers in the front lawn. Kara offered to do it while her friend took a shower and was alone in the front lawn when this happened. So when this happened, a strange man pulled into the driveway After asking if he could hand her some brochures, he ended up pulling out a gun to Kara's neck and forced her into the vehicle where he trapped her in this, like, sort of plastic container. (coughs) Bless you. Um, The abductor was identified later as Richard Evenitz. So according to the FBI, Evenitz held her captive in his home for 18 hours. Um, And his main motivation uh, was sexual abuse. So he ended up repeatedly sexually assaulting her during her time there. Um, But while captive, Kara spent time studying Evenitz and came up with an escape escape plan on her own. Um, So while he was sleeping, Kara was able to wiggle out of the restraints and escape. Um, Luckily, there was a motorist who was driving by and was able to take her to the sheriff's department right when he saw her. Nice. That is lucky. Very lucky. So what ended up happening after that is Evenitz fled to Florida, um, where he died by suicide after being surrounded by the police. So they surrounded him. He ended up shooting himself. Um, After his death, the FBI states that investigators found evidence that led led them to identify him as a killer of three other girls. So it wasn't just, you know, this wasn't his only abduction. Um, He was actually a serial killer. Um, so there were a 16-year-old Sophia Silva, and then uh, sisters Kristen and Katie Lisk. Lisk. Um, they're 15 and 12. So I did some digging on this guy's background, 
because I, I think that part's interesting, like trying to understand, like, how does somebody get to this point that they're doing stuff like this? Mm-hmm. Um, so he, you know, to no one's surprise, had a troubled home life. Um, his dad apparently was an alcoholic and verbally abusive. And allegedly, family members said that Joseph, who was, even it's his dad, um, drowned his dog in front of him. Um, Joseph, the dad, says that this isn't true. He says his children were adopting strays and he did take one of them to the pound. So it's, it's not clear if this actually happened or not. It also stated in the back, in the research that I was doing, that even it's told family members that Joseph, his dad, actually tried to drown him at one point when he was six. Family members differ on the way the incident played out. Some say Joseph tried to drown his son in a wading pool after the boy splashed water on the hamburgers during a cookout. Others say it happened in a bathtub, but it sounds like it definitely did happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Joseph described it as a minor incident that his son misinterpreted. Later in life, even it's married two women who are much younger than he was, which, you know, problematic kind of gives us a red flag. I think they were both 17 and he was like in his late 20s. Both went. I mean, there's a. Go ahead. 17. Too young to get married, in my opinion. Very much so. I cannot imagine. (laughs) And marrying multiple 17 year olds. Like, problematic. I, I, I would hope that some family member would have stepped in and been like, hey, why are you doing this? But is what it is. Both women were said to have been dependent, compliant, and naive. Well, when you're 17, that makes sense. Yeah. For both women, this, you know, he was their first love. Um, so that's just like a little bit about his background and some signs that some things were wrong. Um, and then in January 1987, so way before this incident that happened with Kara, Evenitz exposed himself and masturbated in front of a 15-year-old in Orange Park, Florida. He was arrested a month later when his, uh, he was in the Navy, so when his ship returned to port, to port, and he pleaded no contest and was sentenced to three years probation. So there were absolutely some red flags and warning signs and some, you know, like sociopathic behavior that was like happening in his household growing up, you know, if dad was like trying to drown him and drowned animals and... You know, there was a lot of weirdness there. So definitely interesting. Um, But I also found this story interesting because um, Kara, you know, went on to be really, really resilient after this happened. Um, So in the summer of 2003, um, so this was a year after it happened, she began working with the Richland County Sheriff's Department and Victim Services and in the DNA lab throughout the end of high school and college. And then after her graduation, she decided to go to the police academy to become a school resource officer. So during her career, Chamberlain investigated sexual assault and child abuse cases and went back into victim services. At a certain point, she did um, end up retiring because she had kids and just wanted to be home with her kids. Um, But she did a lot of important work there. Um, Kara's interesting too, um, cause, because uh, she does public speaking engagements to talk about, you know, the trauma piece and preventative, 
preventative steps to take to avoid or escape kidnapping. Um, and it's really cool because she's on TikTok. So I'm not somebody like who frequently goes on TikTok. Like I have one to look at specific things, but I ended up going on to like watch her videos and she has really cool videos. Um, hmm. She talks about her story, um, you know, from her own words and, you know, corrects certain things that people have misconstrued or just things that, you know, weren't part of her actual story. Um, she also talks a lot about um, trauma and recovery. In her videos, she talks about how, you know, she didn't develop PTSD, but she did have some traumatic stress symptoms that lingered after, which is totally normal, um, and just ways in which she managed that. Um, she also asks or answers questions from followers. So if people have questions about like her story and her career, she answers questions all the time. Um, she has a video where she discusses how to escape if you're restrained. Um, she also talks a lot about how um, her trauma affects her as a mom. And it's, it's really cool because, you know, you would think like after everything that she's been through that, you know, maybe she'd be more of like a hypervigilant mom and not let her kids out of her sight. But instead, she has a very um, just relaxed and cool approach to parenting where she just has really on honest conversations with her kids in obviously age appropriate ways about, um, you know, the danger that's out there, um, consent with like your body um, and just ways to stay safe, you know, when, when they're not around their parents. So she's a really cool person. I mean, if you guys are on TikTok, I would definitely look her up. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, that's definitely some res resiliency there. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So now mine's mine, mine is intense. There's a lot, there's a lot of information here. We're going to go we're going in depth, people. So, as I've previously mentioned, I'm going to be talking about J.C. Duggard. And this is, this is quite the story, if you're not familiar, both of really the most rare type of kidnapping and also a complete failure of the justice system in America because this should have never been able to even happen. Mm -hmm. So... JC, on June 10th, 1991, I was several months old at that time, so I don't remember any of this, but I learned it later. So JC, uh, her mom left early well, for work early in the day, and JC got dressed, walked up to the, walked up the hill, headed to her bus stop to go to school, a normal activity, when a car approached her. She thought that the man was going to ask for directions, but the man was Philip Garrido, rolled down the window uh, while his wife used a stun gun to knock her unconscious. They pulled her into the vehicle. His wife held her down in the back of the car as she drifted in and out of consciousness during the three-hour drive to his home. So... Uh, she, the only thing she said, she does remember saying that her parents could not afford a ransom because she had assumed that that's why they were taking her. Mm. 
Uh, that was not why they were taking her, but she did say that. Her stepdad, Carl, did actually witness the abduction. He really? was on the driveway, I believe, working on his car. Wow. So he saw the whole thing happen. He saw two people in a mid-sized gray car make a U-turn at the school bus stop. A woman forced her into the car. He chased the car on a bicycle. Wow. Because um, that's what he had. So he did try really hard. Um, how traumatic for him that yeah. must have been to see this and try to do something. So the police were contacted immediately. There were also other children who were witness to the abduction. I believe they were also oh, no. on their way to the bus stop, so saw this happen. Um, so, yeah, they immediately started searching for her after this happened. The initial subjects um, <laughs> were his, you know, the suspects were her stepdad, Carl, because males who are related to the victim are always early suspects, um, as well as her biological father, who lives in a different state. Though they didn't know each other, um, her biological father apparently did not even know that he had a child. Oh. So, not a suspect. So, basically, they quickly cleared both of them from any suspicion of having done anything here. So, yeah, at that point in time... So, they're investigating, they're trying to find her. She is in the car, driving three hours away. Uh, she describes as, I did read her book, A Soul in Life, where she goes into this in detail. Read it. It's horrifying, but really, really good. And especially if you want to know the psychological victim impact, it's really, really good to get that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so, she describes it being in and out of consciousness. She really doesn't remember much about that so they arrived at their home in the unincorporated area of contra costa county in california they had removed they had her remove all of her clothing um she did have a butterfly ring on that her mom gave her that he didn't notice when he was making her get undressed that she actually hid and kept with her okay so basically they forced her this is the horrifying part. I'm not going to go too much into detail on the sexual abuse in this case. Again, if you read her book, you'll hear a lot more, so we're not going to go too into detail. But he undressed her, did require um, her to take a shower with him. She said it was the first time she had seen a naked man before and did make her touch his genitals only for a second that first time. Then he wrapped her in a towel, put a towel over her head, and walked her into the back of the backyard where there was essentially some sheds. Hmm. Back there, placed her in a tiny soundproofed shed, and then left her there. So he bolted it up, told her that there were vicious dogs outside that would attack her if she wanted to escape, and he would visit her, um, bringing her fast food, like, once a day, mm. and that was kind of how it goes. Um, he did, she says that he raped her for the first time a week after he had abducted her. So she was alone for a week. Um, in there. And for those of you who do not know, she was held captive for 18 years. Mm. So, really, 
Yeah, he raped her for the first time. Um, For the first week, she was handcuffed pretty much the entire time. So she was handcuffed. She didn't even have a bed. It was like a pile of blankets in a shed. He gave her a bucket to use the bathroom. But when she was handcuffed for the first week, she could only go when he was there. Mm. Um, Eventually, he did stop handcuffing her. He did stop, you know... He kind of let her have free reign of the shed that she was in, did give her a bucket with water to bathe herself. After a while, um, he eventually moved her into a larger shed next door, gave her, she had a television, she had cats, but for months, he was the only person that she had any contact with. And during this, he did frequently sexually assault her, and he did tell her that the angels let him take her so that she could help him with his sexual problems so he wouldn't hurt anyone else. Oh, God. So he told her basically, like, this, I have to do this to you so I don't hurt anyone else. So much responsibility to put on a child. Yeah. He was heavily doing drugs during this time. Um, He professed, he had some bizarre beliefs, professed that he was a chosen servant of God, he would rape her and then apologize to her, and then threaten to sell her to other people who would treat her worse than he did. So there was a lot of inconsistency. Mm -hmm. And then several months later, he introduced her to his wife. So keep in mind, his wife Nancy did help him kidnap her and did know that he had her. Um, She brought her... A stuffed animal and some chocolate milk and talk to her. She really talks about wanting Nancy's approval, I think, because it was a different person for her to talk to. And Nancy was the one who wasn't actively raping her. Right. And I'm so, sure having, like, a, another woman there probably felt safer. And mm-hmm. um, Yeah. And except for the fact that Nancy, um, you know, at the time she did... In a later interview, she did state that Nancy was just as manipulative as Philip was. She related that Nancy alternated between motherly concern and coldness and cruelty, expressing her jealousy of JC, who she regarded as blaming JC for all that was happening and what was wrong with her husband. Um, She characterized Nancy, who worked as a nursing homemaid, as evil and twisted, and... um, So kind of early going on to, um, you know, it's such a complicated story because, again, it's 18 years of things that happened, but going on some of the injustice of the system. So Philip Greedo was on probation at the time that he kidnapped her for kidnapping someone. He was on parole after that. Not probation. He was on parole um, for a previous kidnap and rape. He had already kidnapped and raped several people at this point in time. And he, at one point in time, failed a drug test and went into jail for more than a month. And then Nancy did still keep JC there on the property and did not release her. Um, So then she took over as the one jailing her. They gave her kittens to make her happy, but then the kittens would mysteriously vanish. Mm. She also was keeping a journal um, 
about the kittens and their activities. She did post a lot of the journal in her book. And it it's such a weird juxtaposition because it's such like an innocent little kid journal just talking about like all of the things that her cats were doing. Mm. But like you know that she was kidnapped. But he did find out that she wrote her actual name in the journal and Nancy tore it out and they made her come up with a different name. So she called herself Alyssa. So after three years there, they gave her more and more freedom of walking around. Hmm. And on April 3rd, 1994, which was Easter Sunday, they gave her cooked food for the first time. Oh, jeez. So three years in, they gave her food other than fast food. And the reason that they gave her food and celebrated Easter was they informed her that they thought that she was pregnant. Oh. So she was 13 years old. She was four and a half months pregnant. She had learned about the link between sex and pregnancy from TV. So she was watching lots of TV. Mm. Um, So, yeah, she was pregnant. She gave birth to her first daughter when she was 14 years old. So basically, uh, Garrido and Nancy helped her deliver in the backyard. She prepared for it by watching lots of television programs about childbirth. Because that was the only way that she could. So she did give birth. She gave birth to her second daughter when she was 17 years old. And she watched a lot of television and learned... And this is like the amazing spirit. So eventually, years later, he did let her start to use the internet... As he trusted her more, she had been there for such a long time, she would actually stay up late at night and print out worksheets to homeschool her daughter so they would learn how to read and write. Wow. And do those things. So yeah, she was taken care of. So she had two kids by the time she was 17. She'd been captive for six years. And so she watched TV, researched on the internet, and did her best to educate them and tried to protect them from Philip Greedo, who was going deeper and deeper into these religious uh, type beliefs that he had, oh. which really were escalating quite a bit about angels commanding them to do bad things and getting into their thoughts and their minds. He thought that he was a prophet of God. It's really delusional thinking. Yes. So, uh, here... Really, like, reading through um, all of these things, so kind of, you know, it's such a complicated story to get through. But here's just a list of some of the failures on the police of how they should have, someone should have figured this out. Okay. So... These were, the police failed to make the connection that J.C. was kidnapped south of South Lake Tahoe, the same location as Garrido's 1976 kidnapping and rape of Catherine Callway Hall. So, he was a sex offender out on parole who had kidnapped a woman in the same area, and he was never identified as a potential suspect who could have done this. Wow. Um, Less than a year... After her kidnapping, a man called the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department from a gas station less than two miles from the Greedo's home. The caller reported that he saw J.C. Duggard in the gas station staring intently at a missing child poster of himself. They reported seeing her leaving in a large yellow van, possibly a Dodge, in, and an old yellow Dodge was recovered from their property that matched the description 
So the license plate was not reported at the phone call. The caller, the girl, and the van were gone by the time police arrived. The caller never identified themselves and police did not pursue the matter. However, it's important to know that JC did state that she never left the property until 1994. So she says that she actually did not leave the property. So she doesn't say that that happened. But it was reported. Um, So, again, that is her memory of the situation. So we'll just kind of leave that there. The... um, So, in June 2002, the fire department responded to a report of a juvenile with a shoulder injury that occurred in a swimming pool at the Garrido's home. The information was not relayed to the parole officer, who had no record of either a juvenile or a swimming pool at their address. Hmm. In 2006, one of the neighbors called 911 to inform them that there were tents in the backyard with children living there and that Garrido was psychotic with sexual addictions. A deputy sheriff spoke with Garrido at the front of the house for about 30 minutes and left after telling Garrido that there would be a code violation if people were living outside on the property. So, literally was reported that there were children living back there. Um, Because, yeah, there were basically two sheds and at one point in time, JC got her own tent in the backyard. Mm -hmm. So they were there for, again, 18 years and he was on parole and did have parole officers visiting his house frequently that never figured out that he built like a false fence Wow. In part of his backyard and behind that fence were the sheds and where JC and her daughters were living. Um, Again, JC decided in her book to not release her daughter's names for their privacy. So we are not going to do that. We'll just call them her daughters. So again, they never figured it. They didn't realize it. Um, The inspector general released a report that enumerated lapses by the California Departments of Correction and Rehabilitation that contributed to her continued capacity. So they released that in 2009. The central finding was that Garita was incorrectly classified as needing only low-level supervision. All other lapses derived from that mistake. In his report, the inspector general detailed an instance in which a parole officer encountered a 12-year-old girl at the home, but accepted Garita's explanation that she was his brother's daughter and the agent did nothing to verify it despite the fact that a call to Greta's brother verified that he did not have children. So this was a, there were so many things wrong with it. And the thing is, so over time, um, Greta opened up a printing business that JC was actually a part of, and she did interact with people. Um, She did interact with parole officers. So she had literally interacted with them multiple times and there was never any suspicion of why this registered sex offender had a younger woman and two little girls in his home that had never been reported. And also the two daughters were born at home. There was no birth certificates. There was no anything. There was no record of these girls existing. Very problematic. Yeah. So in terms of some things about Philip specifically, um, you know, they basically said with the residents, you know, when they were looking through his backyard after she got caught, they were increased, she got found, they're increasingly nervous. Like his relatives, so his actual relatives stated they were not surprised that he did this. His brother Ron described him as crazy, crazy, crazy. 
Oh. Uh, his father stated that it had been 18 years since he stopped being able to even deal with his son. Uh, the elder, Mr. Gr Manuel Garrido, said he's out of his head. He was on LSD and had very serious motorcycle wreck and hit his head. He was still a young teenager. He wasn't even 17 because they had to call me at work when he had an accident and had surgery. That's it. He was hurt. He went on LSD and the LSD killed him. Okay. So... In some reports, they actually said that they were not able to find any evidence of brain damage on scans of Garrido, so he may or may not have had a brain injury from a motorcycle wreck. There's a lot of inconsistent stuff, but right. going to some of his, you know, things. So this is, the way that he got caught is so fascinating and also leads to how why people say that JC has Stockholm Syndrome. So basically, Philip Garrido thought that he had figured out um, the origin of schizophrenia. So some people say that he had schizophrenia and ADHD. He was under the treatment of psychiatrists for a long time during this prospect. Mm -hmm. um, however, cannot find any clear diagnosis of either of those things. Doesn't mean they don't exist. It's just not in any of the like police records or anything I could find. Mm -hmm. But he wrote this document called The Origin of Schizophrenia and talked about how he basically had the ability to put his thoughts in other people's head and stop them from giving in to the angels' voices that were telling them to do bad things because he had learned to stop giving in and no longer raping children and women. Oh, God. So he took, so he thought that he could teach the police this amazing thing he had discovered to prevent crimes from happening. So he started bringing this document called The Origin of Schizophrenia, like his manifesto type thing, to universities and to the FBI headquarters oh. themselves. And he brought his two daughters with him. Oh, boy. So what happened was he was taking them out. And there were getting some reports from the FBI and, like, the university was basically like, oh, this is very interesting. Why don't you come back later and talk to us about it? Like, contacted the parole officer that, like, there's this guy here with these, because he was saying his full name. He was coming up with other stories of who these kids were. Um, but it did kind of get reported then parole came to the house and basically said he needed to bring everybody to the parole. Or no, wait, they didn't say. So he, they had heard that he had kids on the property and they were asking questions. So Philip Garrido decided to take JC and her two daughters and his wife all to the parole office. Oh. And told JC to lie and say that she was leaving her abusive husband and he was helping them stay there, and she was well aware that he was a sex offender and was okay with her daughters being there. So they came, and the parole officers were instantly like, what is happening? Separated them all, talked to JC for a while, and she was kind of sticking with her story, but then Philip said something completely different and said she was like his brother's daughter or something, which um. is not what he had told her to say. Eventually, he ended up confessing that he kidnapped her. So they came in and they're like, we know he kidnapped you. What is your actual name? And she couldn't say it. So she ended up writing it down and telling the parole officer that she was J.C. Duggard. Um, so she was rescued that way. Um, 
again, really shows kind of the disconnect in his logical thinking that yeah. he decided to bring them all there to prove nothing was wrong, had told her what to say, and then said something different. So he was clearly not thinking straight at the time that this right. happened. But it is really interesting um, to kind of hear what happened from there and how everything unraveled. One of the cool things is that she was actually... JC was able to be on the phone when her mom found out that they had found her alive. Wow. So she was like on the phone when the police called her mom at work. They called the house. Her younger sister answered and they said why they were calling. And then she's like, my mom's at work. So they called her mom's at work, her mom at work and were saying stuff. JC was able to talk to her instantly. And apparently in the middle of her office, she started screaming. They found my baby. Like they found her. Um, so she got to be there for that. She was reunited with her family the next day. Actually, they did fly out to see her. So it all came really quickly. Uh, she says the only thing she remembers saying to her mom was, I have babies. And I love you that she remembers because she was so worried that her mom wasn't going to accept her daughters. Oh, yeah, that's scary. And that, like, all of this information. um, But, you know, as far... So that's, like, the release. So it's very weird. This whole case is so incredibly bizarre and trying to figure out what was happening with Philip is very strange. But looking at some of the, like, psychological factors here with him specifically... A picture emerged of a controlling man obsessed with religion who told the FBI he could control minds. Um, But he was also described by the psychologist as very coherent and guarded. So they said that he was, like, fit to stand trial. Mm. That he was coherent and everything. Um, He was 25 when he first abducted and raped Katie Callway Hall in Reno, Nevada. Miss Hall told CNN that he had seemed perfectly normal when he stopped her car um, and asked for a lift. Then he handcuffed and gagged her, took her to a well-prepared storeroom. She said she thought she was going to die. He held her for eight hours. Uh, he also told her it was her own fault she had been abducted because she was attractive. Okay. So, at his trial for that, they he said he had been overcome by sexual urges. Quote, I had this fantasy that was driving me to do this inside of me, something that was making me want to do it without no way to stop it. So he testified to being a regular user of cocaine and LSD and to frequently masturbating in public places. Oh, so there are some red flags there. Yeah. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison, but was released on parole after less than 11 years. What? So, um, also, they didn't tell his victim that he had been released from prison and he did contact her. No. uh, Which probably should have sent him back to prison, but did not. So, I mean, there was that. So he already had this history, but they say it was an issue with the psychological profiling in prison at the measures that he was listed as a low risk to reoffend, low to moderate risk to reoffend. And the art, the document that they released about what went wrong, they flat out said like, you're judging his behavior in prison where he was unable to kidnap and rape women. So yeah. that really has no bearing to his real world risk factors. Right. Um, at the time, of this assault, he was married to a woman named Christine Murphy. She told Inside Edition that he was a monster who sought to control her, beating her, and once pushed a pin into her face when he saw her talking to another man. Oh my god. 
he did meet his second wife, Nancy, while he was still in prison. Oh. So, um, there's also, um, he's suspected of killing some sex workers as well, mm. which is going to come up in a minute. There's a lot that it's so, there's so much information, but a couple things, kind of some direct quotes. So there is a blog that he wrote about government mind control and his own abilities. And yes, the blog is still online. If oh. you want to look for it, it is something else. But kind of some direct quotes about his mental state. The creator has given me the ability to speak in the tongues of angels. You too can witness the world, what the world believes is impossible to reproduce. Um, so yeah, he gave a pile of documents to the FBI. So that's a quote from his blog. One discussing how he overcame his sexual urges and can control minds with sounds. Um, he said about his behavior, certain behaviors cause a great deal of pain to myself and those who are victimized by those behavior, especially our family and my wife. He said he found one of the most powerful freedoms imaginable in overcoming his urges and now has knowledge which will begin to open a new pathway for us all. Um, so he was, yeah, you know, police said he appeared controlling to his two daughters, so they were 11 and 15 when they were released um, from captivity. They, he was really proud of how he raised them, saying, quote, they don't know any curse words, we raised them right, they don't know anything bad about the world. Oh. Yeah. Um, he gave a rambling interview from prison to a television channel in California claiming he was a powerful, heartwarming story that they were going to be really impressed by. He said thousands would testify in his defense and there would be powerful witnesses he had turned his life around. Criminal psychologist David Holmes said the interview revealed someone who was very, very coherent, using his claim of being divinely saved as a reason he should be immune from prosecution and not giving into the questioning. And he said, quote, A lot of people with personality disorders defend themselves in this way and don't allow other views to be in their social proximity, which is probably what he's done in this household. It's a form of brainwashing. Uh, okay. Dr. Holmes. Um, they suspected he may be involved in the murders of several sex workers in the area in the 1990s. Um, his father, Manuel, said he was a sex addict. That was his problem. I, quote, I believe my son killed the prostitute. So his dad's like, yep, he probably killed lots of people. Oh, jeez. Which does, I mean, kind of say a lot about you as a person. If your dad is instantly like, oh, yeah, I'm confident you killed those people. Right. So it's such, like, there's so much to go. And, I mean, I know the criminal psychologist did say a possible connection to personality disorders. However, ultimately, I can't find any diagnosis for him. Mm -hmm. So I can't for sure diagnose him, but he definitely does have a history of sexual violence. He does have some beliefs that border on delusional. JC even talks in the book about how he thought he could control your mind by sounds, and so he would make her kneel and listen to a radio at a low volume for hours until she could hear his voice in her head. Oh. And so she said that she would just tell him that she heard it, like, to get him to leave her alone. Right. And so, I mean, there's so much, but obviously his behavior did get increasingly bizarre right. over time. Including, I mean, handing out religious materials on college campus with your daughters 
and you know going to college is going to the FBI with all of these documents with your daughters in tow definitely there is some instability and there is a breakdown of logical thought happening Mm -hmm. not sure exactly why um he was sentenced to he pled guilty so him and nancy both ended up pleading guilty he got over 400 years to life in prison she got i think 30 to life really as well yeah so um she will be eligible for parole somewhat soon i don't know if she'll get it yeah but jc and her family did sue the state of california they did the state settled for 20 million dollars which is why some of the stuff i was saying about the breakdown and the parole and how he was misidentified and all of these red flags that didn't come through um they basically the judgment came down very strongly that the police did repeatedly mess this up and were ultimately responsible for this having happened to her um again because they were he was on parole they were getting these reports and they were within their legal rights to search his entire property and decided not to so there was a huge breakdown in the system um as far as you know, the girls, JC does go. I bought her second book to read, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But she, in her first book, does talk a bit about going to therapy. She did go, her and her daughters specifically went to a therapeutic place that did a lot of horse ri- horseback riding therapy that was specifically for family reunification. Um, okay. Talked a lot about how hard it was because, you know, she she was 11 when she was kidnapped, she was 29 when she was released. And she's, you know, her younger sister taught her, who was a baby when she was kidnapped, taught her how to drive a car. Wow. Because she had never learned. And so it was all of these things that she had to go through and learn as an adult to adapt to just existing yeah. on the outside. Because um, she didn't. She didn't know. Both of her daughters did end up going to school. She talked specifically about uh, driving her daughters to school every day and how she had to battle with the acknowledgement that she had been kidnapped going to school. But she's like, it's the most rare form of kidnapping. It almost never happens. So they're probably, it's not going to happen to them. But just kind of battling with some of that fear as a parent with her daughters and trying to protect them but needing to give them a normal life and especially you know with the paparazzi were a big problem when she first got out they were trying to get pictures of her kids which she ended up hiring a publicist and was able to get their faces blurred repeatedly in images so she's done a great job of trying to keep them out because of course they're this no one needs to other than the fact that she's very proud of them and she says that they're doing well that's all you need to know right they are entitled to their privacy this is a horrible thing that happened to them right uh they were also raised to believe that jc was their sister and nancy and philip were their parents um the interesting thing is just going based off of some of the fear stuff, JC does say that, like, in the hotel room, she had to explain to them that she was their mom and she was kidnapped and everything. They were 11 and 15 at the time, and she did indicate that neither of them were at all surprised that Philip had kidnapped her and raped oh. her and forced her to have children. So clearly, like, they knew something was weird mm-hmm. because they weren't particularly surprised from that. And I imagine she was a person that was, like, 
kind of taking care of them day to day. So mm-hmm. they probably felt like, okay, although we're saying she's our sister, it kind of feels like she's our mom. Right. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's been very, it's interesting to read about all of that. And, she, you know, she talks about all of this stuff with leaving. And, again, it's so complicated to try to get this all in, like, brief. Because there's so much here because it was 18 years of yeah. captivity. But... She's doing well, and I just Yeah, I was going to ask, like, psychologically, like, how is she doing? Is it just ongoing therapy? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so she's still... She reports doing pretty well, actually being able to, like, make friends. Um, has done a whole lot of therapy. She was kind of against therapy mm-hmm. at first. Um, but really said that once she because the biggest thing is she didn't like to sit around inside because she was held inside for so long like she said she oftentimes felt trapped mm-hmm. but they did like a lot of outdoors hiking um so yeah she has a very close relationship with her therapist i don't know if what all she's doing at this point in time but they did do this like super intensive like daily reunification therapy to help them adjust to the real life and like even when she met with a publicist like her therapist went with her it's such a specific type of therapy that they went through Mm -hmm. but they report doing good overall and she also has started a charity the jc foundation j-a-y-c And their mission statement is, our mission is to be of service to individuals and families that have experienced a severe crisis, challenge, or conflict through a major life disruption to spread the message of hope, growth, and resiliency through experiential and educational animal-assisted programs to encourage the collaboration of various entities to provide protective spaces and families of individuals to heal. Cool. So specifically trying to work with uh, people who have been abducted. And have gone through kind of severe trauma and helping their whole families heal, which is such a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, she's a bit more private now. She has a she has a certified Instagram that she hasn't uh, posted anything on till two, since two thousand and nine, which was kind of the last time she did interviews. Mm-hmm. So I think she's been able to, you know. Get her privacy back and get her life back. Wish her the best. And she also, um, this is just a cool thing. So when Nancy and Philip pled guilty, she did a victim impact statement. Good. I'm going to see if I can. I'm glad she got the chance to be heard. Well, and so her mom read it. And I'm just, I'm going to, I found it, um. So, I'm just going to read it. So, this is word for word her victim impact statement found on ABC News, which I love the opening line. I chose not to be here today because I refuse to waste another second of my life in your presence. I've chosen to have this, my mom read this for me. Philip Greedo, you are wrong. I could never say that to you before, but I have the freedom now. And I'm saying that you are a liar and all of your so-called theories are wrong. Everything you have ever done to me has been wrong and I hope someday you can see that. What you and Nancy did was reprehensible. You always justified everyone to suit yourself, but the reality is, and always has been, that that to make someone else suffer for your inability to control yourself, and for you, Nancy, to facilitate his behavior and trick young girls for his pleasure is evil. 
There is no God in the universe that would condone your actions. You called yourself an honest man, but these are just words to you. They were your tools of choice, and you wielded them with brute force. To you, Philip, I say that you have always been a thing for your own amusement. I hated every second of every day of 18 years because of you and the sexual perversion you forced on me. To you, Nancy, I have nothing to say. Both of you can save your apologies in empty words. For all the crimes you have both committed, I hope you have as many sleepless nights as I did. Yes, as I think of all those years, I am angry because you stole my life and that of my family. Thankfully, I am doing well now and no longer live in a nightmare. I have wonderful friends and family around me, something you can never take from me again. You do not matter anymore. Wow. Right? Good for her. Again, and this is the thing, it's offensive to say that she had Stockholm Syndrome. Like, she was very clear she lied at first because she was scared. And she talks a lot in the book about, you know, theoretically wanting to leave. But being like, I don't know how to drive. I don't know how to get money. I have two children. Like, how can I leave? And just, like, the logistics of leaving with two kids. It was too complicated. Right. And so she clearly, based on that, she was very clear. She hated every minute of it. She did what she had to do to survive the situation. She did not have Stockholm Syndrome. She did not love them. She has no affection for them. And that is such a badass victim impact statement. Mm -hmm. I agree. So, yeah, that is the story of JC. Wowie. Ugh. Yeah, these these stories are so sad, and I mean, hopefully it brings you guys some comfort to know truly, like, how rare these are, mm-hmm. but the stories are still important to talk about, just because we don't want these sorts of things ever happening again, and if we can catch people early, I mean, that's, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's it. Um... And again, just, I wish that there were more easily accessible psychological profiles sometimes, because it would be cool to know more. It could be hard to piece stuff together from the internet, but it is always interesting to just learn things about some of the people who are doing these things. Absolutely. That that part really interests me, because it's just like, like, how do you get there? You know? Yeah. All right. So do you have any good shit for this week? Um, I would say that good shit is just the JC Foundation. Really cool to learn about a charity that's doing so much. Probably going to donate some money to help some people. So, yeah, the fact that she started a foundation and it looks like a good one. So, I would say that's the good shit going on in the world right now. That is good shit. <sighs> I'm trying to How think, about you? I'm trying to think of any good shit that I've heard. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to think if I knew of any, like, foundations or anything that were doing cool things right now, but I feel like I don't really know any. Um, but in, in other That's news, okay. I guess, I, I would say the fact that the weather's getting nicer, we're able to go on walks again. That's really cool feel like we've been like hibernating for so long yeah oh i have another good shit your birthday's coming up oh yeah that is true my birthday is coming up do you want to tell everybody when your birthday is yeah my birthday is april 25th i will be 30 which i'm a big one it's a big one i'm having a minor crisis about it but it's totally fine 
It's gonna be great. It's a very important. Thank you so much. Uh, you can give money to our Patreon if you so yes. choose. Uh, let us know specific audio feedback if you've got mm-hmm. it. And thanks for getting spooky yes, with us. Yes, thank you guys. We'll see you next time. <laughs>